On this episode of Emerge, I speak with Allison Cohen. Allison works as an instructional coach for public high school teachers and is a certified mindfulness educator for schools and social service organizations. Allison focuses on the interconnections between mindfulness and bias awareness and reduction. In this episode, we speak about how mindfulness can disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline, the subtleties of implicit bias and cultural conditioning, and the nature of embodied racism. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to another episode of Emerge. Uh, this week on the show, I have with me Allison Cohen. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's such a pleasure and honor to be participating in this. Great. And um, the first question that I often ask uh, uh, new people on the show is, um, can you share a little bit about what kind of work you do in the world and um, in particular, the story of how you came to do it? Sure. So I am, if I could summarize it in one word, an educator and my background is as a high school teacher, English for speakers of other languages, remedial English, and mindfulness, actually. I ran a school mindfulness program. And now I coach teachers, generally struggling teachers in struggling New York City public high schools. I also teach mindfulness in a variety of capacities, both within public high schools, to medical students, to community members. And I, whenever possible, also do work relating to racial bias and the intersections of mindfulness and racial bias. Great. And I think that's, I'm hoping where a lot of the conversation will be focused and um, around the topic of the intersection of mindfulness and uh, racial bias or uh, implicit bias, as I've heard it called. And uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the term, what is, what is implicit bias? Thanks, Daniel. So implicit bias refers to biases that are unconscious, that are automatic, that in many cases we don't even realize we have. Mm -hmm. And these biases are generally based on stereotypes, stereotypes that we've unknowingly breathed in as a result of our families, the media, whatever environmental factors we've been surrounded by. Um, what's interesting about them is that they're generally not an indication of a person's values or beliefs. Mm. They're below the surface. Yet, what's been found in research study after research study is that they dramatically influence decision making. And so despite the fact that I may not know, I likely don't know that I'm holding certain biases the ways in which I interact with other human beings, the decisions that I make on a day-to-day -day basis are going to be affected by those biases. Specifically, research has found in the arenas of snap decisions or decisions made in autopilot mode and decisions that fall into the category of ambiguous, where it's just really, it's, it's unclear what, what the right or wrong answer is. Mm. And so, and so, when when we have implicit bias, or we all have implicit bias, but all of us, every single one of us, right, right, and typically we don't know what those implicit biases are. Is that right? Generally, we don't. Yeah, um, unless, for example, 
someone comes into our office or into our school or into our hospital and a researcher arrives and does a research study, in which right. case we are then <laughs> notified of our biases. Right. Um, but yeah, generally we don't know. And I, I do want to say that biases, especially in 2015, 2016, have gotten a really bad rap. Mm. Um, but the fact is that we've evolved to be biased and we need certain biases in order to survive because they allow us to more efficiently process and categorize like huge quantities of input that we're constantly taking in through our senses. So often these biases, not necessarily the implicit biases, but yes, some of these implicit biases help us determine when we're in danger or other similar situations. That being said, often implicit biases detrimentally affect our interactions and decision making yeah and so that and and uh we met through a mutual friend who who was really active in the social justice scene in new york city and uh we we had a long conversation about uh the relationship between mindfulness implicit bias education and the school <laughs> to prison pipeline which was really fascinating. And yeah. so I'm, I'm not really even sure where to start, but like maybe first we can kind of unpack, because I'm not sure it's even familiar to people. Uh, what is the school to prison pipeline? Great, Daniel. Yes, that's a wonderful place to start. And it's, it's actually funny because I remember when I first heard the term and I realized, oh my gosh, I've intuit intuitively understood that this is the reality for so many years, but I never had a term to mm. use that would allow me to articulate what I'd experienced and witnessed. So thanks for that. Um, the School to Prison Pipeline refers to this widespread trend of punitive disciplinary policies and practices within school settings that criminalize minor offenses and generally target students of color. And the, this widespread trend is often, interestingly, outside of educators' awareness. But what it ends up leading to is funneling already disadvantaged students mm. into the criminal justice system. And um, just to make this more concrete, a phenomenal professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Education found that when um, analyses were done of classrooms in California, white teachers and black teachers disproportionately, and this is a very recent study within the last two years, disproportionately punished black students mm. and more harshly punished those students for the exact same behaviors wow. that white students received either no negative feedback for doing or much less what, what am I looking uh, Less harsh punishments for. And the key piece is that it didn't matter what the racial identity of the teacher was. I'm curious, if, do you know if they knew that they were acting in that biased way? Oh, it was found that they had no clue. Wow. Absolutely no idea. And what's interesting about this, I mean, there are many interesting pieces of this, but in conjunction, what studies have shown is, for example, the second a student at the high school level gets suspended, the likelihood that they'll end up in the prison system goes up exponentially. And so if you just take that, those two studies into account, what comes to mind is, oh, well, if a black student is more likely to be suspended, 
we can assume that they're more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. Mm. Yeah, and so and so I think the link there becomes pretty clear between a, a teacher's behavior in relationship to a student and their and then the kind of reification of the school to prison pipeline. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. And what's so what's so upsetting about this and also what's so hope inducing, at least from my standpoint, is that teachers don't realize that this is what's happening, though of course in the last few years few years, there's been more awareness shed on the issue. Um, and yet, mindfulness practice acts as an extraordinary tool for reducing the role that teachers play in this pipeline. Great. And so yeah, let's let's jump into that. How exactly does mindfulness enable us to become aware of and work with our unseen biases? Awesome. So I just want to back up for a second and ask, because I'm not so sure about this in the context of Emerge, um, would you like me to provide a definition of mindfulness or is that already part of your Emerge introduction? No, it's not. And, and you know, I, I think there's lots of different definitions floating out there. So it might be good to uh, use your definition, at least for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Uh, totally. I, I completely agree. So, um, yeah, I just, before we continue, I realized I've already dropped the word mindfulness several times. And when I say mindfulness, I'm referring to paying deliberate attention with an attitude of kindness and curiosity and openness, really, really being open to whatever arises in our moment to moment experience. So in this moment, noticing that I'm still feeling a little nervous and concern that I might misspeak or say something that I don't actually mean, noticing my feet are cold, noticing I'm wondering what you're thinking right now, Daniel, just tuning in to what's arising in my moment to moment experience. And what's been found again and again is that the brain wanders constantly. The most recent statistic I read said on average, we are not living this moment 47% of the time. And what this means is that so frequently in our moment to moment decision making, we're not acting from right here, my feet are cold, I'm thinking about what Daniel's thinking, I'm aware that that's what's going on. Instead, I'm making decisions based on past experiences that are clouding my ability to experience what's happening in this moment, or based on thinking about the future, or something else entirely. And like daydreaming, I'm in a state of daydreaming and yet I still have to put one foot in front of the other. And research has found that if people train again and again in returning to this moment, this breath, this experience, and to tuning in to thoughts, feelings, sensations, etc., what I now have is more agency to choose an appropriate response mm. moment to moment, since I'm actually acting from presence rather than what some people refer to as the trance of mind. So when I was in my early 20s and beginning my life as a New York City public school teacher, an experienced meditator, who was also one of my colleagues, introduced me to this journey of mindfulness. And as I started to watch my own mind early in my career, 
I could not believe, Daniel, how early on in the school year I began to label students. Mm. So I would notice my mind narrowing, assuming this one knew the answer, this one was definitely not going to be able to come up with it, assuming this student would be disruptive while that student would behave perfectly. It was wild. And this was often after interacting with these students for a very brief amount of time. And yet this is actually the norm in schools. I've had so many teachers share with me that this, has, this is also their experience. That so quickly, because there are so many moving parts in a classroom, educators label students quickly and they develop a relationship with an idea of who that person is rather than with a living, changing being. Hmm. I do want to say that more often than not, this happens unknowingly, mm -hmm. and especially as the result of three things. Hearing about kids from their former teachers and then having the judgments of those teachers cloud the lens, mm. perceived patterns in students' behavior and academic output, so then all the teacher sees is what confirms those patterns versus any new input that might make you believe as a teacher, oh, wow, this student's growing in this way. Mm. And then the third is biases associated with racial identification and so socioeconomic status, not to mention, for example, immigrant status or many other statuses that affect right. things. Um, so what I found early on was just being aware of what I was thinking moment to moment allowed me to catch when I was starting to zero in on a student as the troublemaker or the teacher's pet. My current obsession in this work is around research from University of Oregon that's referred to as VDPs or vulnerable decision points. And what's been found is that the unidimensional perspective on school to prison pipeline, which is also referred to as disproportional discipline, it was okay, racial bias leads to disproportionately punishing students of color. But actually, as researchers have looked into the numerous factors that affect classrooms and affect teachers and affect the school to prison pipeline, a new theory has emerged that very much matches my experience as a teacher and the experiences of teachers I've worked with and that I've coached. And that's known as the multidimensional um, view of bias, which says it's not only racial bias that leads, for example, a teacher to more harshly punish a black student than a white student. It's the combination of racial bias and, and this is what's so important, and these vulnerable decision points, which are, which refer to specific decisions that are more vulnerable to the effects of implicit bias. By this, I mean situations that are ambiguous or that involve a student with whom the teacher has had a previously negative interaction mm -hmm. and VDPs are dramatically affected by what's called the person's decision state, their internal state of affairs. And what's been found is if a teacher is really hungry and doesn't realize it, really tired and doesn't realize it, 
interacting with a student she or he has never interacted with before and is feeling particularly rushed. That in certain situations, if teachers are unaware of what's going on internally for them, and this is why mindfulness practice can be really helpful, they're exponentially more likely to rely on those implicit biases, mm -hmm. which you may remember I earlier said are more likely to be relied upon when teachers or when anyone is making a snap judgment. And I will tell you as a teacher, most of my job consisted of making snap judgments. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in a workshop where I heard teachers on average make 40,000 decisions a day. And we're just trying to deal with so many moving parts. And in those moments, if I haven't practiced outside of the classroom, really tuning into my moment to moment experience, guess what? I'm hungry and I'm more likely to yell at the, this kid than that kid or more likely to admonish this student rather than that student. And right now, um, part of the work that's being done in this world of VDPs is supporting teachers around how to become more aware of what's happening with them. And so what happens if a teacher is hungry and tired and aware that they're hungry and tired? That's a great question. So it's funny. Um, a Spanish teacher who's also a basketball coach, he went through one of my trainings and in the training, teachers were encouraged and they were able to practice it within the workshop to just throughout their day, fill in the sentence starter, I am aware three times before walking into class, before the beginning of a class, before meeting with a colleague or a, a student. And I also suggested write it on a post-it, just take a look at it throughout the day. So one day, Late in the day, he comes into the teacher's lounge and he says, Allison, sixth period was about to begin. I was feeling so irritable. And what I kept thinking was, these students are gonna drive me crazy. I don't wanna teach them next period. They've been driving me nuts. I was just having numerous negative thoughts and feeling, let's just say, very unexcited about interacting with them in a few moments. And then I checked in, I did that I am aware thing, and I thought, oh my gosh, man, you are starving. You forgot to eat. You are so hungry right now. And he is very aware, I will just say this, that he needs fuel. And he realized in that moment, it was as if all those thoughts disappeared he realized it wasn't the students at all because actually he's a very passionate teacher most of the time, but he was simply hungry. Now what's fascinating is that he had no food anywhere in the room to consume in the two minutes before class began. It was all in the teacher's lounge. But because he was aware, he said to himself, okay, I'm aware I'm hungry. I'm aware it's not the student's fault and I'm aware I'm not gonna take it out on them and I'll eat after this period. And he actually said, and this was what was so fascinating, that the class went beautifully. And then he said to me, and now I'm gonna grub and I'm gonna eat enough for 10 people. But it was, it was such an interesting moment because it was as simple as just saying, I'm aware and recognizing, oh, these thoughts are not truth. They're coming from a specific place, one of hunger. Right. This, I think, is so important because it would, and especially when it comes to racial bias, uh, 
it's so easy for us to believe that we're not racist, you know, to put it quite simply, and yet uh, act in ways that uh, kind of duplicate the dominant paradigm that is, you know, to one degree or another, uh, has racial biases embedded within it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, teachers are really the front line of enculturing young people <laughs> into exactly. their identities. And so without a tool to examine the inner state, you know, they're, they're basically defenseless to our culture's narratives about identity. You know, and if you asked, I think, most people, are you a part of this system of oppression and control? You know, they would say no. And yet, you know, I one one story that I can share just of my own experience with this is um, I remember some years ago after sitting uh, an intensive meditation retreat, I went um, afterwards to New York City to visit a friend and he was living um, somewhere out in like East Brooklyn, you know, so uh, a primarily black neighborhood. And I was outside of his apartment waiting for him to return because I got there early. And so I was just out on the street and I could feel in my body tension when I saw people approach. And I was, my mind was like confused and angry and in denial about the fact that there was some kind of embodied reaction to the presence of people, yes. you know, that were different than me. Mm-hmm. But because I had this training, I just come from a meditation retreat, I managed to kind of, you know, stay with it, look at it, look at it with kindness and openness. And eventually it went away. And I was able to just be there peacefully, smiling at people, you know, just enjoying being in a, a, nice, ta- a nice neighborhood. But if I didn't have that tool, Exactly. I would have been reacting unconsciously in all kinds of different situations. And in that way, and I'm sure that there's a degree to which I haven't, you know, resolved that completely. And I'm not sure it's even who, who knows what, to what degree that's possible. But, right. um, you know, that then my interactions change accordingly, you know, because I've resolved the underlying tension that, may, that, that is generally unconscious. That's a beautiful way of describing what it means to be with our internal racism with compassion. Um, there's this phrase, the smog of racism, the, the, this idea that literally just like polluted air, when you grow up in the United States of America, no matter what your background, you breathe in like smog, you breathe in racism and it enters and it's there. And then the question becomes in a country where literally the worst thing you can call someone is racist. Mm -hmm. When you, Daniel, in that moment of noticing, oh, wow, my whole body has tensed, you were able to identify it as, oh, this is connected to seeing people who look different than me, people with darker skin, people who are black. In that moment, being able to compassionately swoop in, oh, wow, the pain of this, the pain of feeling separate, the pain of feeling different, and the pain of acknowledging that my own thoughts and bodily experience 
are so viscerally affected by the the environment in which I've grown into adulthood. Yeah. Um, so one, I just want to commend you on that because what I find so frequently is that when people see or acknowledge, oh my gosh, the thought I just had, that was so racist. What's the first inclination? And I have experienced this myself. I've been in this position many times. The first inclination is to, as quickly as possible, push that thought back down to the basement of your psyche and then say to yourself, that didn't happen. Mm. I'm not racist. And it's like, actually, we're all racist. And I've had several black male friends say to me, Allison, sometimes I experience so much pain when I allow myself to see thoughts I'm having about my own people. And yet, I want to be careful with this still at the end of the day, when it comes to who's making decisions in classrooms, right. who's on the street, also who's hiring people and who's determining whether someone named Jamal or someone named Ashley gets a job. Often those people are white. And that's also a piece of the puzzle that needs to be named over and over again, that yes, we're all breathing in the smog of racism, but how influential that smog of racism will be in terms of the effect it has on other people's lives still in this country when at least 80% of teachers in the country are white, you know, race matters. Um, so actually, if we can shift to where you just took the conversation to this racial bias and body awareness, hmm. what's interesting is that so much of the way racism plays out in our day-to-day -day interactions actually has to do with the body mm. and with, as you described, with tension, with what's known as microaggressions. Um, and this is particularly, of course, relevant with teachers. And there are practices that I teach teachers and that I teach to more general audiences concrete practices that can be done so that in our day-to-day -day lives, we're more likely to tune in and do, for example, what you did, re-relax. And it doesn't require going on, even though you know me, I love going on week-long silent retreats. Like it doesn't require that to be tuned in. You know, I, I first got broken open to these issues and issues like them when I was organizing at Occupy Wall Street. But before that, you know, um, I grew up in a, in a predominantly white town. I went to a predominantly white school. Um, it was never a part of my experience. You know, I was never taught this. It was just not something that I, I thought about because I have the luxury of not having to think about this sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, or the privilege. Um, and yet, you know, I think for those of us, and I, I hope that people listening are the kind of person for whom this is true, who really care about, you know, building a better world with our bodies, with our behavior, with our minds, how do we uh, start to work with this in our own beings? You know, mm -hmm. like even me telling my story, 
about about being on a street in New York. Like that was really uncomfortable for me to tell. <laughs> Congratulations, you know? leaving yeah. <laughs> discomfort is the basis of transformation. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this whole topic, because we have the privilege not to talk about it, not to think about it, it's a lot easier to just not deal with it, pretend it doesn't exist, sweep it under the rug, not my problem. But I think that what we've been talking about is that, in fact, the responsibility is all of ours. And in particular, it's ours, those of us who have power also have a corresponding responsibility to kind of step up to the plate and work in this domain. And if you're listening to a podcast, if you have the free time to listen to a podcast, you're probably in that domain of privilege. Yep. So uh, what would your kind of advice be for that? Uh, yeah. So I'll give a few concrete, I guess you could call them practices, but informal practices that can really help us get compassionately curious about the ways in which we've been affected um, by breathing in the smog of many things. And one piece is, it's interesting, you mentioned you were raised in a small town, or sorry, an all-white town. It was also small, yeah. A small, all-white town. So one piece of the puzzle is making sure that we question why our neighborhoods, our social networks, etc., are predominantly white, for example, if that is the case. Um, there's really, really interesting research on what happens when a white person is walking down the aisle of an airplane and if they, you know, some airlines have open seating and what's been meaning like, I apologize, unassigned, not assigned seating. And what's been found is that white people are really likely to do everything in their power to avoid sitting next to a black passenger. Mm. And not what's been found be, is it's not because they feel anger towards the black passenger who's sitting in seat 1A and seat 1B is empty. It's actually because they are so nervous and often and by often, I mean 99% of the time, not aware of the fact that they're worried about saying something that could be perceived as racist mm. or doing something that could be perceived as inappropriate in an interaction with a person of color. And that one of the first steps each of us needs to take is noticing when we are avoiding interacting mm. with people different from us, and this goes for all of us, out of fear of making some social faux pas, because mm. one of the main ways implicit bias has been found to be reduced is when human beings have meaningful, positive interactions with people of whatever groups they've got biases about. Mm. And that one of the best things you can do for yourself is just push yourself out of your comfort zone and go, okay, I want to chat with this person, or maybe I don't particularly want to talk to them, but there's no reason why I shouldn't sit next to this person versus this person other than this fear that I'm going to say something incorrect or whatever. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to sit down and we're going to talk human to human. And so frequently, 
I hear or I read about white people saying, oh, you know, it just happened. My friendship network is just all white. It just happened, you know, that's just who I grew up with. And that's just, and it's like, wait a minute, let's back up for a second. It just happened? No. There are numerous reasons why that happened. And part of it is because at some point, despite having access to other folks you could have you could have tried to strike up a friendship with, you made a choice. It may not have been a conscious choice, but it was a choice. So that's just one thing I would want to say is mm -hmm. lean into discomfort and you might find, this has been my experience, that you're pleasantly surprised to realize you have some you have a lot more in common with someone who you expected to be so different from you than people you thought you would have so much in common with mm. or the differences are a beautiful beginning to a friendship of mutual curiosity respect and admiration who knows what i would say is there's a concrete practice i like called first thoughts and the challenge is as you walk down the street as you sit on the subway to just notice the first story or thought that comes into your head when you see a stranger and that can teach us a lot about our implicit biases i've been shocked horrified befuddled i've laughed at what has come into my mind when i have interacted with people and and this is what's even funnier I mean, you might say karma is real, but in several of those situations, I have, for whatever reason, then had to interact with that person. And in 99.9% .9 of the cases, I've been totally off base. Right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been truly hilarious because because of mindfulness practice, I was so aware of what my thoughts were about that person upon literally just seeing that person's face that then to have within five minutes, my entire theory dismantled. What, what is that other than comical? It's like, oh, this mind that we have is just wild. And there's a quote I heard recently that really has helped me in this process. And the quote is, the mind is shameless. It will think anything. And it's like, yeah, exactly. The mind will think anything. I don't need to believe it, but if I'm not aware of it, it's dramatically affect, It's likely to dramatically affect how I choose to interact with that person. Mm. So just thinking to yourself, first thoughts, and what will likely happen, because this is what happened with me, is I noticed patterns. And guess what? Those patterns often matched the media. Yeah. So, and I don't know if you'd like me to share this, Daniel, but I actually have a story similar to yours that I think highlights this. Sure, yeah, please. So I was chatting with a neighbor of mine who lives down the block and um, we had met a few times and had quite positive interactions and we'd gotten into the habit of greeting each other. But we, at some point, I don't know when this was, a month or two ago, met on the street and began to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement. And he's African-American. He's around my age. I'm 31. And at some point in the conversation, after he just said something about conditioning, ironically, we were talking about implicit bias. I noticed this thought come up 
very strongly. And the thought was, wow, he sounds so articulate. He's so well-spoken. And in that moment, I had a flash of a conversation that I'd had a week or two before with a dear friend of mine who I've known for over a decade, also a black man, who had told me about going to, actually he's in interfaith work. So he'd gone to a white Jewish event, he's Christian, and he was mingling with all of these different white Jews. And he said, Allison, the number of times people said to me in, with this surprise tone, wow, you are so well-spoken. Wow, you are so articulate. Do you realize how articulate you are? And then he had said to me with this tone that it was he, like he was in deep pain and despair. He said to me, Allison, do you know how tiring it is? It's so tiring. And I had this moment of, I'm sitting on the street talking to a neighbor and I have the experience of having the thought that all of these people had verbalized to him. And I thought, oh my gosh, Allison, this runs so deep. Even you, even you have been affected. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean infected. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, because I was aware of it, I swooped in with compassion. I recognized that that thought, you are so articulate, you are so well-spoken, was actually distracting me from listening to what he was saying and that I could just redirect my attention to what he was saying. And I was also able to mind the gap and not verbalize that. But for black men, and often for black women, one of the most common, common microaggressions is being told in a surprised tone, you're so articulate, because what that reveals is the assumption that they wouldn't be in right. the first place. Thank you for sharing that story. That's uh, that was very moving to hear. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Of course, of course. Um, what, one thing I'd like to say before we kind of round out the show is uh, the topic of the show is about how to, how people are creating a more beautiful world. And one of the things that prevents us from having a more beautiful world is having expectations about how things should be or are and not seeing through those. And I think that that is so true in education where students will conform to our expectations of how they will perform. And it's also true just in all of our lives. And so it's not limited to racism. It's about how we show up. It's about the work we do. It's about what we believe is possible when it comes to organizing or innovating or anything else. Uh, but this, you know, I think is cuts to the heart of one of the biggest obstacles to creating a more beautiful future for ourselves is uh, thinking things are a certain way. And so I really want to thank you, Allison, for showing what it looks like in a very real way to cut through that. Well, thank you for valuing this topic and these questions and for your own honesty and your willingness to lean into discomfort and in your recognition as you said earlier you know is it really possible to fully resolve these biases these implicit biases the answer is as far as we know no but that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile fight and um there's actually a quote I really wanted to share that I'd love to end with 
from a mindfulness teacher, Saki Santarelli. And he says, and I think this is relevant to the medical profession, to teaching, to policing, but really honestly, to any work we do in the world. He says, side by side with the acquired knowledge of our chosen field and externally directed activity, we are simultaneously called on to make an active ongoing effort to work with ourselves inwardly if we are to engage in the full practice of our profession. Hmm. And that, that constant recognition that, as you said, if we're going to show up, it means doing this inner work and really tuning in with deep compassion, with skillfulness to what's happening right now and how can I more skillfully navigate it. Thank you.